title of today's message is Holy Dependent Upon God. And I know that the word holy there is spelled H-O-L-Y. It's kind of a little play of words that you'll be able to see why throughout the message as we go here. Our primary scripture that we're going through today is found in Leviticus chapter 20, if you want to turn there in your Bible. As I was preparing, I read a story about a little girl who had a question for her mom on the way home for church. She asked, Mommy, the pastor's sermon this morning confused me. And the mom looked at her daughter and said, well, what about it confused you? The little girl replied, well, he said that God is bigger than all of us. Is that true, Mommy? And mom said, well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Then the, then the little girl said, well, he also said that God lives within us. Is that true, Mommy? And so, well, yes, daughter, that's true. That's very true. And the little girl said, well, if God is bigger than all of us and God lives within us, how come he doesn't show through all the time? And that is a, a very good question, and it's an innocent question that this little girl that has been debated and struggled with by those who follow Jesus, and it's been this struggled with and 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 talked about for centuries, because there's this tension between the biblical truth that Jesus' work on the cross was the final thing that had to happen to, for us to win favor with God and make, make us acceptable in his sight. But there's also the other side of the necessity of practically living a holy and righteous and sanctified lifestyle in order to win the favor of God. And this tension creates a lot of angst and a lot of infighting within the church. On one side over here, you have this live holy or else crowd. Oftentimes, this crowd will put a lot of behavioral prohibitions on Christians. They'll say, you can't drink, you can't chew, you can't smoke, you can't do this, can't go to a movie, you can't do that, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. They have all kinds of rules for us to try to live in a way that is, is acceptable to God. And on this other side over here, you have, well, Jesus paid it all. It's by grace we have been saved. So Jesus took care of the law. We have no law, and we can live pretty much however we want because Jesus paid it all. Praise God. Amen. And often that side does all kinds of things that are pretty questionable and, and against the character of God. So we're going to deal with the tension between these two opposing ideas today as we look upon the name of God that deals with holiness and sanctification. And it is found in the scripture that we're about to read. And that name in the Hebrew would be Yahweh M. Kadesh, which means that the Lord is holy or the Lord who makes you holy. And in the verse that we're about to read in Leviticus, God is going through several of the prohibitions against idolatry, against witchcraft, against pagan practices, including very deviant sexuality and even up into child sacrifice. And after, after listing several of these things, the narrative pauses for a moment for God to make a declaration to his people, and that declaration declares who he is to all of them. Leviticus 20, verse 7. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, or in the Hebrew would be I am Yahweh M. Kadesh. And Father, I ask, Lord, for your help this morning, that you would help us to explore 
the big ideas of who you are, of what your, your definite nature is, what your requirements are of us considering that nature, and how to live a life that is pleasing to you, and a life that will be effective to this world. Because, Lord, we want to be effective for you. We want to be able to work for you. And we want to win as many souls as we can to Jesus Christ. So that when we stand before you, we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Be with us this morning, Lord. And let it be for your glory. Amen. So we're going to look at several of the truths this morning about holiness, about sanctification, and how to live um, holiness and sanctification before the world, especially a world that is becoming less and less godly and more and more opposed to anything that resembles godliness. So let's begin by asking the question, what is holiness? What is holiness and how does it relate to God? Oftentimes, the answer to that question quickly descends into a lot of do's and don'ts. You do this, you don't do that. A laundry list um, starts to come out. People will put um, rulers on the rails outside a church to make sure the hemlines of the dresses are long enough or make sure you have the right version of the Bible or, and we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't hang with those who do. We sing that stuff like that at, at Bible camps and all that. But it, I think that uh, misses the mark a little bit because there is an elephant in the room that rarely gets talked about when we talk about holiness and sanctification Instead of asking for a list of do's and don'ts, maybe we should ask ourselves instead, does this action that we're contemplating doing reflect God and his character in our lives? Because trying to define what is holy and confine it to a list of what is permitted and prohibited action, what is, um, excuse me, permitted and prohibited actions cheapens the true meaning of the word in that concept. You see, holiness refers to God's essential nature. It is his essential nature. It is the very foundation of his being that all other attributes flow from. In Isaiah chapter 6, we get a glimpse of God's throne. In it, we see cherubim and seraphim, other, other forms of creation which surround and guard the throne of God. And they fly around God. And it is very notable what they cry out. Because they don't cry out, merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord. They don't cry out, forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness is the Lord. They don't cry out that he is just or interested in justice. They don't cry out, just, just, just is the Lord. They don't even cry out, love, love, love is the Lord. What do they cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's not that God has programmed them to say this. He didn't, when he created the cherubim and the seraphim, he didn't get in there and wire them that, I'm just going to have them say holy, holy, holy forever. He didn't wire them to do that because that wouldn't mean anything. I think that each time one of these beings circles the throne, they see just another aspect of God, and all they can see is that essential nature that he is holy, holy, holy. It is essential, a foundational and, and an existential truth of who Yahweh is. Holy. 
So what does this word holy really mean? Why is holiness so important that God uses this word to describe what is most central to his being in the name of Yahweh M. Kadesh? So let's define holy. From the Evangelical Theology Dictionary, it says that holiness is an inviolable sacredness. It means it cannot be changed. Or a solemn righteousness. But what does it look like on the practical side? How does it define God and who he is? Simply defined, it means that God cannot do nor be the cause of anything evil. Anything he does is holy. So we could define evil as anything that goes against God's character as revealed in the Bible. That is a simple definition of what is holy and what is evil. It is either in God's character or it is not found in God's character. And that's a very important distinction is right now in our society, they are trying to define what is good and what is evil apart from God and failing at it miserably. That is why evil is never defined as what goes against ours or any other cultural norms. It has nothing to do with the culture. It has everything to do with God. The reason that this is so important is that in today's culture, more and more religious movements are starting to sell out to the need to be relevant, to the need to be loved by the world, and they're tossing out what they consider to be the offensive parts of the Bible and never talking about them. Good and evil are defined solely by what the Bible describes as God's character, period. It is not defined by the culture. Let me illustrate this for you a little bit. After September 11th, I was at my dad's house. And one of the few times my dad has asked me a sincere question about God and religion, he asked me if I thought that the hijackers that flew the planes into the buildings would go to heaven. Because he said, after all, they were following God as he revealed himself to him in Islam. And according to Islam, if you die in jihad, you go immediately to heaven and you get 70 virgins. That's what they believe. They believe every, all 19 of those hijackers believed that as soon as those planes hit the building, they're going to be in heaven. And he said, since God has revealed his, himself that way to him through Islam, that God will have to honor that somehow and that they will have to go to heaven. And he asked me this. And I said, Dad, belief in God is not the, pro, is not the issue. The devil believes in God. The demons believe in God. And tremble, the Bible says. It is, belief isn't the key to salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is the key to salvation. Faith is the currency of heaven, not just belief. And that's why I can say with complete, complete confidence that those deceived souls, those 19 men, as soon as they smacked the building and committed that horrendous act of mass murder, entered immediately into hell upon their death. You see, it doesn't matter what the popular opinion in Saudi Arabia was at that moment. It doesn't matter what the Middle East thinks will happen to those men that they would immediately enter paradise. What matters is what they, if what they did was, a, was in line with God's character and his holiness. It doesn't matter what their culture or our culture calls good. It matters what God calls good and holy. That's why as a Christian, we can study the nature 
of God as being completely holy. We can see what his opinion is about certain behaviors and actions. And we can make that same declaration about them that God has. Because it's coming from a being that is totally good, totally morally perfect. And that's why holiness also means holy perfection. Has anyone here ever heard a person say that they're mad at God? Anybody ever heard that? I have. They're mad at God. Maybe at a funeral. Oh, I'm mad at God because he took him already. Or I'm mad at God because this happened in my life. Or I'm mad at God. How can a good God send people to hell? Or how could a good God allow 20 to 40 people get shot in a nightclub in Orlando? How could a good God allow that? How many people have, have heard those kind of arguments? You see, many people want to play God for the condition of the world or some unfortunate circumstance in their life. People automatically want to go and blame God. And they do that because they don't want to admit that humanity at its core is fallen. Humanity is the one who causes the evil in this world. They don't want to see that. They don't want to admit that. Jesus' brother James makes it very clear that God isn't in the business of doing that which is evil. James said, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, God cannot lead humanity into evil. He can't lead anybody into evil because no evil exists within God. God can't bring you to a place that he has never been. Trying to accuse God of causing evil or leading people into evil is like us, trying to, is like us taking a ship out into the North Atlantic right now and jumping in and trying to swim down to the Titanic. We can't do it. If you don't have a submarine or scuba gear, at least, you're not going to get anywhere close. We can't even attempt to begin to do such a feat. That's, God cannot attempt to do that which is evil. Just like we can't breathe water. We can't handle water pressure of 2.5 miles of ocean above us. God can't do anything or cause something to happen that will result in evil. But we have to be very careful. Because often what we consider evil, God considers good. We get a little twisted up with that. Simply, to simply put it, the moral perfection of holiness is defined as God and his presence. Evil can be defined as the absence of God and his presence. That's a pretty simple way of looking at it, isn't it? Now, I know many of us who, are, who kind of think deeply about things seem, though, that's just too black and white. That's just way too black and white. You can't, you can't live like that. That's, just, that's, that's crazy. What about the gray area of life? Well, I would say the gray areas of life is that that is absence of God's complete sovereignty over a situation. So a compromise has to happen because we didn't follow God's ways completely. So then we compromise and we create a gray area. But really, it's because of a lack of God's complete presence in that situation. God's moral perfection only allows for one perfect outcome in any decision or situation, and that is his. And we can trust his judgment because it comes from a being that is totally and completely morally perfect and holy. 
Not only is he perfect in his judgments, but he also has your best interests at mind. God has this awesome and perfect plan for each one of our lives. And he wants to see you prosper. He wants to see you be useful in his kingdom. But you have to trust him and his character to reap the benefits of his favor. It all comes down to faith and trust. A third way to define holiness is the majesty and awesomeness of God. Remember Isaiah's reaction upon seeing the holiness of God, of seeing those seraphim flying about him and seeing God for who he is. He cried out, Woe is me! I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Perspective is key sometimes. I remember the first time that I flew in an airplane. I managed to get a, a window seat, and I, I was blessed with a relatively cloudless day. And I remember on my flight to Atlanta to go to basic training, we got up to 30,000 feet. You know, the pilot comes on and says, we're traveling at 600 miles an hour and going 30,000 feet and tells you all that kind of stuff. And I remember looking out the window over the top of the wing and just seeing how small everything looked from that high. I remember a few years later when I was standing with Tammy in Chicago outside the Willis Tower, formerly known as the Sears Tower, and I was standing outside of it and I was looking up and just seeing how incredibly tall this building is, seeing the antenna, two antenna at the top covered in clouds and going, wow, I'm going to the top of that. And it just made me feel so small standing next to that gigantic building. The same thing should happen to us when we're confronted with the holiness of God. Our smallest smallness as compared to God's immense presence should always result in holy fear, just as it did in Isaiah's life. Now, the fear we're talking about is, is different than just being terrified of something frightening. It's a deep awe. It's a deep respect to an overwhelming presence that floods into you. I don't know if you've ever been into a church service where the, the, whole, the, the tangible presence of God has entered in, but when that happens, almost everybody is on their face. Nobody could even physically get up because the weight of God is so filling that place and the hearts of those people. That kind of holy fear will produce within the heart of the follower of Jesus a deep desire for more of that presence, a deep desire to produce, to, uh, and a need to be more like him. The psalmist describes it like this. He said, deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. The imagery is standing in an ocean when the tide is coming in. Just like you can't stand against that ocean when the tide comes in with, with a force. You can't stand. It's talking about the presence of God just washing over you. I've been spending a lot of time during the last 30 to 60 minutes of my on-call shift at the hospital between 5 and 6 in the morning, I go down to the dam, below the dam in Black River, after I get some Quick Trip coffee that I love so much. James keeps forgetting to bring me some when he goes and gets it. And I watch the water as it flows through the gates. Occasionally, you'll see a, a piece of wood or a log come flying through those gates and rush down the ramp. And below the dam, it just gets washed all over the place, and this log gets tossed 
back and forth and sometimes just disappears from sight as it rolls up under the, up under the water and finally gets spit out and continues its trip down the Black River into that current and, and follows down the river. And that's how this verse, that's how the holiness of God is so overwhelming to us. We are that log when we seek him with all of our hearts and we seek Yahweh and Kadesh in all of his fullness, we will be completely overwhelmed by the power of his presence, by the fire of that holiness. And once we experience that, we're ready to face everything that the world throws our way. There's another part about Yahweh and Kadesh that I want to talk about this morning is that the holiness of God should lead to sanctification. And that's a second part of what his name means. Now, the definition of sanctification is twofold. First thing means is to be set apart. There's an area in the hospital that all of us have probably been in at one time or another. It's cleaner than any other area. The people who work there have to be completely dedicated to maintaining its cleanliness. Even to the point, I remember we got called up there for an emergency and there's a, a cabinet right outside we're supposed to change clothes into. And I forgot about that and I went running in there. I was immediately grabbed by the neck by a nurse and escorted right back out and said, you need to put the right clothes on to enter this area. It was pretty rude, but they cannot violate the cleanliness standards of that room. Everything in there, the equipment, the instruments, even the hands of the people working there have to go through preparation. We're talking about the operating room, and the operating room has to be completely sterile. Even the smallest amount of germs in that room can cause a devastating illness to a person whose normal defenses through their skin are being bypassed to repair a problem within the body. Sanctification has that same principle. It's to remove all things impure because impurity can be, in, can be very devastating to our spirits. We are like a lighthouse, and impurities cloud our spiritual window so that the light of God's character can't shine through that. People won't see God when they see us because we have our windows covered with all kinds of impurity. Remember that story at the beginning of the message, a little girl wondering why God couldn't be seen as shining through people? It's because, the people, because often we don't want to submit to the process of sanctification. It means to be set apart. It means that there are things in this world that you're going to have to voluntarily surrender to partake in or to refuse to partake in so that God can have a clean vessel to shine through. Sanctification, if you want to look at it this way, sanctification is the Windex that cleans that glass, that keeps it shiny, that keeps it transparent so that people can see God in you. In addition to being set apart, sanctification also has a second meaning. It means to be put to proper use. My second job in the Army, I, I had kind of an eclectic Army career. I went through with three different schools. My second school was a mechanic. And I remember my, one of my first shifts in the motor pool, 
I had this nut I was trying to loosen, and it just would not loose. It was caked with sand. It was caked with grit, caked with just about everything. I'm trying to get it loose. I've tried heat. I tried some WD-40. I've tried tapping on it. This thing would not come loose, and I'm just getting frustrated. It's hot out. It's, oh, what was I, South Carolina. It's like 100 degrees out. I'm up under a truck trying to get this stupid thing to loosen up because I had to, I don't remember what it was now, but I just could not get this nut loose. And so I just started getting frustrated. I grabbed my ratchet and I'm just pounding on it. And the motor sergeant saw that and he comes running over and very loudly and very publicly and very profanely re-educated me on the proper use of a ratchet. And a ratchet is not a mallet and it is not a hammer. It is used to loosen and tighten nuts. And he reminded me, of that. Sin can be described that way. It can be described as taking something that is meant for holy use and misusing it for the wrong purpose. You see, you and I have a great liberty and a great freedom within Jesus Christ. That liberty frees us from the bondage of having to follow a laundry list of do's and don'ts, of following law, but too often we misuse our freedom to satisfy our own desires and not God's. That freedom comes with the condition that the desires that we seek are to be God's now. Because he has rescued us from the law of sin and death. When we satisfy our own desires, the lighthouse windows get cloudy with shame, with guilt, with impurities. And eventually we can't even see out of them anymore, much less other people seeing God within us. Sanctification means to be willingly set ourselves apart, to be used as Yahweh M. Kadesh sets fit or sees fit. And if we do these things, that's when the joy of the Lord can be our strength. But it's a conscious decision that each one of us has to make, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, to allow Jesus Christ to be Lord over everything. And that brings us to our final point. Yahweh M. Kadesh means God is our sanctification. He is our sanctifier. So we are completely dependent upon God for our sanctification. This is not something we can earn. I talk a lot about yielding. I talk a lot about allowing God. But he is our sanctifier. You can't earn it. You can only accept it through Christ Jesus and then yield to it. When you do that, the Holy Spirit comes within you and enables you to want to do that. When we yield to God's presence in our lives and the circumstances he allows to mold us and shape us, that is when sanctification starts to take place. And it often takes place the most during the hard times. You know, when you're going through a hard time, a very difficult time, the question should never be, why me, God? Why do I have to go through this? Why are you bringing this into my life? Darn it, I'm supposed to be happy and wealthy and, and all of that. How come you're, you're sending me through this? The question should be, what are you trying to do in my life through this situation that I'm in right now that will make me more like you? What rough spot are you trying to rub away from me right now so that the water of your spirit has a clear passage to flow through? You see, that's the real secret of having joy in the midst of a storm. If you want to be a witness, let people see the God of peace at work in your life when everyone falls apart. Because that's when it shows a trust and a certitude that what you believe is really real. 
It shows that you are Jesus' disciple. You know, Jesus never told us to make converts. He didn't tell us to grow churches. Do you know that? He didn't tell us to go grow 5,000-member churches. What he said is make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who submits to sanctification, who submits to God's molding process. And that process is going to look a little different for each person. Every one of us are going to have different tests that we go through because we need a different testimony to minister to those people going through similar circumstances. And you'll be surprised who God throws in your way sometimes, who went through the who is going through what you have already gone through, and you sat there as a testimony to them that God can pull them through this. The test of a true disciple of Jesus Christ and the heart of that person is, are you willing to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? To surrender to Yahweh M. Kadesh and trust him to finish this good work of sanctification that he has started in you.